We'll now read that same psalm. Psalm 40 is our scripture reading this morning as we think about the birth of Christ. We'll read the whole psalm, and though we'll uh, give attention especially to verses 6 through 8, what Spurgeon called uh, one of the most wonderful passages in the whole Old Testament where the incarnate Son of God is seen not through a glass darkly, but as it were face to face. It's a psalm of David to the chief musician. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock, and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. and Your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. And I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God. And your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help, my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. Verse 3 says that he has put a new song in my mouth, and that new song is the rest of the psalm that we just read, and it says that many will, will um, hear or see this, and they will fear, and will trust in the Lord. And so that's our prayer this morning, that as we uh, hear and see what God has done for his son in Psalm 40, as we listen to that new song that Christ sings, that we would indeed fear and trust in him. Read that also in connection with Lord's Day 14 of the Heidelberg Catechism. 
God's providence, this was not able to be preached uh, last week, and so we consider it together this morning on uh, Christmas morning, the holy conception and virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It's on page 878 in the back of your hymnal, and we will um, read this confession together responsively as a summary of the Bible's teaching about why Christ was born. Question 35 asks, what does it mean that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary? That the eternal Son of God, who is and remains true and eternal God, took to himself through the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, a true human nature, so that he might also become David's true descendant, like his brothers in all things except for sin. Question 36. How does the holy conception and birth of Christ benefit you? He is our mediator, and in God's sight, He covers with his innocence and perfect holiness my sin in which I was conceived. Congregation, there are sometimes certain songs that stick in our minds with certain life events. Maybe you can remember a song that was played at your wedding, some major event or turning point in your life, maybe in some relationship. Maybe there's a a song that that comes on and it reminds you of a certain season of life where that song was was precious to you. The song comes on and immediately your mind is brought back to that place. Psalm 40, you could say, is is one of those psalms in the life of Jesus. There are certain psalms that fit well with with certain events in the life of Christ. You think of a psalm like Psalm 22 with the crucifixion. Psalm 41 in Christ's betrayal by Judas. Psalm 118, his triumphal entry. Psalm 16 in the resurrection or Psalm 110 in Christ's ascension. These various psalms that speak so clearly of these different events in Jesus' life. Because Jesus understood that they spoke prophetically of him, that the same sort of thing happened, where at these critical moments in his life and ministry, certain psalms were brought to Christ's mind. And he would sing them, or he would quote some portion of them. And Psalm 40 is the psalm of the incarnation. Now Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that this is the song that Christ came into the world singing. And specifically, those verses that we sang, verses 6, 7, and 8, about how God does not desire sacrifice, but has prepared for Christ a body to do his will. So those verses will be our our focus this morning in connection with uh, Lord's Day 14 of our catechism as we think about Christ's true human person and the true heavenly purpose of his coming. Christ's true human person or or true human nature and his true heavenly purpose, the reason why he came. Consider first his true human person. That's the point that our catechism makes in question 35 when it says that in the holy conception and birth of Christ, the eternal son of God took to himself a true human nature. That he becomes like his brothers in all things, 
except for sin. He really takes to himself a real human nature. This psalm, Psalm 40, uh, speaks of this in verse 6 when it says, My ears you have opened. Which is maybe a little bit of a confusing phrase, but, but the way the Septuagint understands this, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is as a sort of synecdoche where the part stands for the whole. To the part, then, his ear refers to his whole body. When David says, my ears you have opened, or, or literally uh, in, in the Hebrew, my ears you have dug for me, the Greek translators of the Old Testament understood this to mean and translated it as a body you've prepared for me. And the book of Hebrews gives its divine stamp of approval on this translation by quoting from the Septuagint in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5. Confirming that when David says, an ear you have dug for me, the meaning is a body you've prepared for me. And so as Christ comes into the world, he comes singing, God, you have prepared for me a body. That true human nature that he he would take to himself at the working of the Holy Spirit from the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, that body, God lovingly prepared for him. And Christ came delighting in it. I'm just worried about what Hebrews 10 means when it says that Christ um, came into the world singing this. I don't think we're to understand the baby Jesus uh, skipping a whole developmental stage of infancy and, and of, of human speech and, and actually voicing these words at his birth. Now, part of the wonder of the incarnation is that he takes upon himself real human limitations. For instance, it's not true when we sing in a way in a manger that the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. No, he did cry. He was a real baby. That, that's what the incarnation is about. And likewise, we're not to understand this then as, as um, Jesus as a baby literally singing these words. But instead, we're to understand what Hebrews 10 says in, in light of Christ's divinity. Did you notice where Lord's Day 14 says that the eternal Son of God who took to himself a true human nature is and remains true and eternal God? In other words, in the incarnation, he does not shed his divine attributes, but he remains true and eternal God who in his divine mind, according to Hebrews 10, as he was entering into the womb of Mary to be conceived as a human child, did so with Psalm 40 in mind. Or as he passed through the birth canal of the Virgin Mary, did so with Psalm 40 on his mind, the song of the incarnation, the song of Christ's holy conception and birth. Lord's Day 18 explains the relationship between Christ's divine and human natures and says that while Christ's human nature is limited, his divine nature is not. It is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. And so even though in his humanity, uh, the baby Jesus would not have taken the words of Psalm 40 on his lips, in other words, he, he had to learn Psalm 40 just, just like all of the other boys and girls, And yet in his divinity, the Son of God came into the world with the words of Psalm 40 in mind, a body you have prepared for me, an ear you have dug for me, but not just an ear, eyes and and a nose, fingers, little toes, and that body 
those hands and feet which would be pierced, that body would be the instrument for the salvation of the human race. Jesus knew that when David first wrote these words, he spoke beyond himself to Christ his son, David's true descendant, whose body God specially prepared for the unique task that lie before him. A task that we'll get to in a moment. But first, I would ask that we just linger here for a bit and, and think about these wonderful words that God prepared for Christ a body. That's how the author of Hebrews understood Psalm 40. It was the Spirit of Christ speaking in Psalm 40 through his forerunner David of what was true of David, yes, but, but ultimately of his son. God had prepared for David a body. He had, he had dug for him an ear to do God's will and to reign as king, to hear God's word and obey it, even to, to play the harp and to record for us the book of the Psalms, to uh, shepherd God's people and defeat their enemies to, to slay the giant with a sling and a stone. But the words of David, a body you have prepared for me to do your will, were not just true of him. But like David's words in Psalm 22, or Psalm 16, or, or Psalm 41, which project his experience into the future to that of his son. So these words of Psalm 40 speak of Christ. God prepared for him a body. That little body of the infant Jesus was specially prepared for him by his father. He was fearfully and wonderfully made, woven together in the depths of the earth. I think of a psalm like Psalm 139 that, yes, was true of David, but also prophetically anticipates the infinite skill and wisdom by which God the Father wove together Christ in the womb of Mary. He knew exactly what his son would need. So he lovingly prepared for him a body. As it says in Job chapter 10, he made and fashioned him an intricate unity, made him like clay, poured him out like milk, and and curdled him like cheese, clothed him with skin and flesh, knit him together with bones and sinews, granted him life, and cared for and preserved his spirit. Beautiful description of the way that God knits together children in the womb. The same process by which he lovingly forms our children is that which took place and more in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, where with the greatest care, the Father prepared for him a body. And Jesus says, behold, I come. From, from heaven high, he condescends to the womb of the virgin, and he delights to do so. You see that delight in verse 8 where it says, I delight to do your will, O my God. But you also see it in verse 7 where he says, Behold, I, I come. Here I am. I, I'm ready. The son comes ready. The Spurgeon says he, he comes forth from the ivory palaces down to the abodes of misery. He comes promptly at the destined hour. He comes with sacred alacrity or eagerness as one freely offering himself. He comes in all his personality, all that constituted his essential self. The invisible God comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an infant, the infinite hangs at a virgin's breast. He says, here is something worthy of our incessant gaze. Sit down and watch with earnestness. Emmanuel did not send 
but came. And he came with eagerness, saying, here I am, Father, to do your will. Sit down, beloved, and set your gaze upon the Son and his eagerness to do the Father's will. His gracious condescension to come down from heaven to earth. Behold, I come. And the reason why he comes, we see already in verse 6, has something to do with the sacrifices and offerings that God did not desire. You notice he mentions four different kinds of sacrifice in that verse. He speaks of sacrifice and offering, burnt offering and sin offering, and says God did not desire those. And it's right on the heels of that statement where Jesus says, Behold, I come. I come into this world with the body you've prepared for me because sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, the the totality of the sacrificial system was not enough to please you. The reason for Christ coming into the world with this body that God specially prepared for him is because the Old Testament sacrificial system was insufficient to do what it was meant to do. It could not truly remedy man's greatest problem, his sin. Therefore, his separation from God. And so Christ comes into the world with a body to do God's will, which includes not only keeping every aspect of God's revealed will in the law, but also, we think of those words from the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, Father, but thine be done. Christ's coming to do the will of the Father includes going to the cross. Hebrews chapter 10 says that when Christ came into the world singing this song, it was because by the sacrifice of himself, he would abolish the entire Old Testament sacrificial system and would establish an entirely new order. In fact, if you haven't already, I invite you to turn to Hebrews 10 and see the logic of of the argument of the author to Hebrews. You see back in verses 1 through 4, In Hebrews chapter 10, the author makes the point that the animal sacrifices are insufficient as the law was only a shadow of the better things to come. And those sacrifices could never make us perfect. Verse 4, he says, it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so that's the main point that Hebrews 10 is making that it's not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And the author of Hebrews then supports that point by saying, therefore, verse 5, when Christ came into the world, he did so with Psalm 40 on his lips, saying, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, burnt offering and sin offering you had no pleasure in, but a body you have prepared for me. And so this body of which Christ speaks is set in contrast to the Old Testament sacrifices of bulls and goats. And then Christ says, Behold, I come to do your will as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Behold, I come to do that which which the blood of bulls and goats could not do. To take away sin. To please the Father. Notice he says God does not desire these Old Testament sacrifices that could not take away sin, but but Christ taking on a body which he will offer himself, verse 10, that is God's will. That does please God. That he does desire. 
In verse 9b, he makes the point that, that the better sacrifice of Christ's own body takes away the first. It says it takes away the first. That's referring to the, the entire Old Testament sacrificial system of which he's just spoken. Christ coming to offer his body takes away the first. It renders the whole Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete. Because the whole point of these sacrifices was that they pointed forward, Hebrews 10 verse 1, to the better things to come. And so when that better thing came, they ceased altogether to be of value. Spurgeon said, as candles are of no estimation when the sun has arisen. That's what the Old Testament sacrificial system was. It was a candle in the dimly lit room of the Old Testament, which is no longer needed because the sun of righteousness and day spring from on high has risen. The one that the whole Old Testament pointed forward to. That's the point of that little phrase when it says, in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. What he's come to do in making the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete by taking on a body that God prepared for him and then offering that body is in direct fulfillment of what is written of him in the scroll of the book. In other words, the scroll of the Old Testament scriptures. Where John Owen says, beginning at the very head of the scroll, the very start of the Old Testament, among the first things written in it is the prophecy of the coming of Christ to do the will of God. Genesis 3.15, to reverse the curse, to take away sin, to crush the serpent and cover our nakedness. And the rest of the Old Testament then is is the filling out of this prophetic shadow. The one that is revealed already in paradise is proclaimed by the holy patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed in the sacrifices and ceremonies of the law. The whole Old Testament is the, the continuing unfolding of that first messianic promise. And when Christ came, he understood that all of it was about him including this psalm here. All of it speaks of this one who would be our mediator in God's sight and would cover with his innocence and perfect holiness our sin in which we were conceived. That's what we confess in question 36, that this one whose body was specially prepared by his father, which includes his his virgin birth and holy conception by the Holy Spirit, where he does not inherit Adam's sin, yet truly is man, This body, specially prepared by the Father, benefits us, question 36, because it allows our sins to be covered by this one who will be our sacrifice. This one who does God's will perfectly and does not sin, yet will go on in Psalm 40, verse 12, to so identify with us that he takes our iniquities on himself and confesses them. Did you notice that as we read Psalm 40? We, we know that Hebrews 10 is, is um, we know from Hebrews 10 that Christ is the singer of this psalm. And yet when we come to verse 12, he confesses sin. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. They are more than the hairs of my head. This is Christ here praying as our representative who has come to take away our sin who has come to take it on himself, to identify with us in our deepest need to own our sins and pay them on our behalf. Do you see what Christ has come into this world to do? 
as we've been singing throughout the month of December in our, our closing doxology from Psalm 72, he has come to take away transgression, that which the priests and the animal sacrifices could not do. He covers with his innocence and perfect holiness our sin in which we were conceived. He was not. He was supernaturally conceived, a body specially prepared for him. And then he went on to perfectly do God's will in in every aspect of his life, down to every last jot and tittle. Then, even though he was perfect, he willingly owns our sins as the final sacrifice for sin to make us right with God. If you see what Christ has come into this world to do, he's come to take away our sin. Behold, I come. Let us heed the words of Spurgeon this morning and set our incessant gaze on the Christ who came. That's the main application of this sermon. Set your incessant gaze on the Christ who willingly came. The infinite who became an infant, the eternal God who took on human flesh, the light of the world, who entered into the darkness of the womb, the darkness of this sin-cursed earth, the one who knew no sin, yet took our sins on himself. Behold him. That's exactly what he says. Behold, I come. Look at me. Behold me coming into the world from heaven to earth. Behold Consider how all the types and shadows are fulfilled in me. Everything in the scroll of the book pointed forward to everything that it spoke of is fulfilled in me. Saying, behold, I'm the one that they spoke of and my coming into the world to take away sin, behold. The author of Hebrews would add, therefore do not turn back then to the Old Testament sacrifices. Do not turn to anything else to take away your sin. Do not look to the blood of bulls and goats. Do not look to the mass. Do not look to your own works. Do not look to your own doctrinal precision. Do not look to your own church membership, but look only to Christ, who with his innocence and perfect holiness covers your sin in which you were conceived as you look to him in faith. As you hear him proclaim, verse 9 of of Psalm 40, the good news of his righteousness in the great assembly. That word that the Greek translation of of the Old Testament translates gospel. Right after this this little section of verses 6 through 8, Christ says, I have proclaimed the gospel of righteousness in the great assembly. And so as you hear him proclaim that, verse 9, which he does every Lord's Day as we gather together, behold him with the eye of faith, repent of your sins, and trust in his sacrifice. Trust in his righteousness. Trust in this one who has become like his brothers in all things except for sin, and yet takes our sin on himself. And respond in worship. Behold him. Trust him. In verse 16, adore him. As he proclaims this good news of his righteousness, respond, verse 16, by rejoicing and being glad in him, loving his salvation, and saying continually, the Lord be magnified. You see that in verse 16, how the response of all God's people to this, 
is let all those, Lord, who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. In other words, our response to to the incarnation, our response to this new song that that has been put on the lips of Christ, which, which speaks of him coming into the world with a body prepared for him, our response is to worship. Isn't that what we see going on all throughout the the Gospels, all throughout those Advent texts in the New Testament? Uh, Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 1, singing in response to this good news of the Christ who came. Rejoicing. Luke chapter 1, magnifying the Lord, as as Mary says, Behold, I, I, I magnify God my Savior. Matthew chapter 2, we even see Magi coming from afar, coming hundreds and hundreds of miles at great risk to themselves to worship him because of what he's done. The proper response to the incarnation is worship. If I could just say that's, that's one of the reasons why it's sad that, that even though today is the Lord's Day, many churches have, have canceled worship so as to celebrate Christ by staying home. That misses the proper response of verse 16. It it misses the proper response of the Magi. It misses the, the response of the shepherds and of Simeon and Anna and Mary, Zechariah. The proper response to what the Christ of Psalm 40 has done is to pause and behold him. And then praise him. To set our gaze on this one who said, Behold, I come. And to say in response, how then could could I not respond by coming to him in worship? To give my very self to the one who has given his body for me. And so we do that this morning. Whether coming to him for the first time in faith and repentance, which is the only way for his innocence and perfect holiness to cover you. Or coming for the 1,000th time to rejoice and be glad in him, to love his salvation and say continually, the Lord be magnified. May our hearts say that not only today, but every day, continually worshiping the Lord for sending his son. Continually setting our incessant gaze on Christ, worshiping the one who says, Behold, I come, and who continues to come to us by his word and spirit until he comes again. Until then, may our response be heartfelt worship. Amen. Father, you have prepared for your son a body perfectly knit together in the womb of the virgin, separate from human sin as he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, that he might be able to do that which the sacrifices of the law could not, to truly atone for our sins. Father, we thank you for how you sent him and how he gladly came, singing, Behold, I come, in fulfillment of everything that was written of him, the scroll of the book and the law and the prophets and the psalms, even this psalm, We pray that you would help us now to to respond the way that this psalm calls us to, beholding with the eye of faith what Christ has accomplished in his incarnation, casting ourselves upon him in faith and repentance, and then rejoicing 
saying continually, the Lord be magnified. Father, it is our heart's earnest desire that you would be, both as we respond now in praise and as we seek to give ourselves to the one who gave himself for us. I pray in Jesus' name.